good to see you again, old friend. I haven't seen you in a long, long time. I will tell you the whole story, all its twists and turns. So, you are Cooper. said that I loved her and I will miss her the rest of my days. Amen. Amen. back everybody once again i am murphy and this is tom who do you think this is here haven't we been here before tom i feel deja vu on a scale from andy to judy how pissed are you that we're having to do this again andy level definitely you you posited on twitter that i was angry like uh, mr c and i'll see you again in 25 years but actually i was more like andy because i expect oh. this kind of stuff it was you know okay i i was a little disappointed that your technological Advancements. You got a new computer, a new mic, but still, somehow with the new technology, something fucked it up. But now we've got it all figured out. So here we are again to do a review of part 15, which is a really good episode. I'm very excited about that. Yeah, is this your favorite episode of season three? It's one of my favorites. I really, there's certain parts of this one that I really love, that really touched me. I cried. I laughed. I was scared. I was thrilled, titillated. I was uh, aesthetically pleased. And it's got a certain like uh, energy to it. It's kind of like Lost Highway, the ending. It's got a certain vibe like that's kind of hard edge, which I like. What would be your top five? Oh, uh, boy. God, that's a hard one, Tom. I guess 17 and 18 are right up there. And then 15, three. Obviously, eight, I think, is number one. That's number one for everybody. Eight is not just great. Eight is like mind-blowingly great. Eight's like... Kubrickian great, like upper, upper like annals of all filmmaking great, I think. That's going to be in the time capsule 50 years from now or 2,000 years from now or whatever. After that, it gets murky. But I would say, yeah, those three, nine I like. I think 11 I like. Uh, 15, 16, 17. Well, 16, not so much. Honestly, I think 16. I, I, I don't know if I'm in the minority, but I don't like the scene where Cooper wakes up. I think that I didn't like that. I did, for some reason, I didn't, it didn't, I didn't feel, I felt like his worst acting was done when he finally woke up as Cooper. Um, and so that was a little bit of a letdown, actually, in 16. 
but not 17 and 18. 17 and 18, I really, I loved. <laughs> I know your favorite's 18, right? Or eight. You like 18 over eight. Yeah, 18, eight. I love three and I love two. I see you always like two better somehow. I don't put two even in the top 10. I need to watch it again. All right, well, do we have any uh, preamble we need to talk about before we start this, fire this baby up? I forgot all the cool things we said last time. Last, folks, the last episode was great. One of our best. Maybe we'll get it on like a, it'll be a lost episode at some point if we can ever refurbish it enough. Because I think all my lines are great, right? It's just you. It's kind of fucked up. He's wrong. <laughs> Couple of things. Lynch receiving the honorary Oscar. Oh, that's right. Yes, finally. Thank God. Would you, oh, wait, I asked this question last time. Would you rather him receive this honorary Oscar or to receive an Oscar for, like, a movie as best director or best picture, but a movie that wasn't one of his best? You know, like, kind of when some people get rewarded, like, you know, Al Pacino for Son of a Woman type situation. What would you choose? Well, the Oscars have been a joke for me since 2001. That was the <laughs> year that Lynch was up for the best director nomination. But the award went to Ron Howard, competent director. But who's going to remember A Beautiful Mind? Uh, who even remembers A Beautiful Mind now? Uh, but Mulholland Drive will live forever. It's already been voted uh, by, I think, Sight and Sound as the, the best film of the 21st century. I prefer Lynch to win an Oscar for a film that he's directed, but I highly doubt that um, he'll make another film. Um, if he does, I can't see it getting the love that Blue Velvet or Mulholland Drive did, but um, it is you know, like you know, an honor for Lynch to win the award. I'm, I'm happy he's being recognized by the Academy. I mean, he's someone who's been nominated four times, three for directing and one for co-writing The Elephant Man. But the fact that he's getting the award, I think, says a lot about his reputation in, in Hollywood. Would you like if he, if he had, like, the jumping man go up and do one of those, like, reject the Oscar like Marlon Brando did? <laughs> Would you like that, the jumping man? Yeah, that reminds me of... Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, the Kubrick, he was given the D.W. Griffith Award, I think right before he died, and he was in England, and he didn't travel, so he sent a taped message, and it's just a, a treat. It's a delight. It's, you know, there's hardly any footage of Kubrick. Uh, there's some audio um, interviews that you can find, but not a lot of video other than that shining documentary that his daughter did, but uh, his acceptance of this award is classic, and he pretty much just spends the entire two minutes uh, talking about the Icarus myth, which is just just uh, just pure comedy gold. His wings are melting. He didn't buy it then, obviously. He's Icarus. All right. Anything to add here? We're just going to dive right into the sucker. Peggy Lipton died a couple weeks ago. Oh, my God. Yeah, I forgot we talked about all these things we talked about last time. I thought we've already talked about them. But, yes, that's another horrible thing. I really loved her. Gosh, she was like the heart of the show. She was like almost like a type of log lady herself. She did have a certain Zen Buddha quality to her and also a mystery. Like we didn't really under, we never saw her at home. We never saw her private life. We never saw her outside of the, the double R. So there was always an air of mystery about her. And, uh, you know, from the mod squad days and being the mother of like Rashida Jones, married to Quincy Jones, she's always been, uh, you know, very, she seemed like she had a really good heart and a kind soul and, you know, like a kind eyes. And uh, she was a very kind of maternal figure. Ball of Twin Peaks, I would think, is I don't think we put Sarah up there. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe her cherry pie is turning gold, Tom, somewhere. That That's a great loss. Unexpected. She was such a striking beauty. I mean, you look at those Mod Squad days, but uh, even in Twin Peaks when she was in her 40s and even in season three, she was just a striking beauty and just an incredibly beautiful woman, but very talented as well. And Norma was... Um, uh, one of the pillars of light in Twin Peaks. Um, I think she had a maternal quality. She was there for Shelly. Um, the diner was a constant. Um, she stood up to her mom, uh, M.T. Wentz. And even though her love life has been a mess since high school, when Big Ed ran off with Nadine after he, he thought she ran off with Hank, um, she's persevered. I mean, she's done this on her own. Hank went to prison for five years. Uh, Big Ed's been with Nadine. Um, she really is uh, the embodiment of strength in Twin Peaks. And um, she's one of the few characters that didn't succumb to the darkness. And I think there's a reason why she got the ending that she did with Ed. And uh, to have them come together 
um, after 25 years was just a, a moment of a pure elation. And uh, uh, there's no better way to say about Peggy Lipton and, and Norma Jennings that uh, the Twin Peaks fans will see you in our dreams. The Dream. All right, we're at the Rancho Rosa logo. If you want to follow along, we're going to press play now. Aside from part 17, I think part 15 has the most scenes that take place in Twin Peaks. There is the brief scene of Cooper taking the cork off the fork and putting it in the light socket and a scene of Chantal dispatching uh, Duncan Todd and Roger, and then another scene with Chantal and Hutch. But all the other scenes take place in Twin Peaks. Like one of the high points of the entire series is, is the Norma and Big Ed scene we're about to see in this episode. And I wept. I literally wept tears of gold when it first came out. We open with Nadine, presumably uh, making the journey from her store, Run Silent, Run Drapes, to Big Ed's gas farm to deliver a message that she has seen the light and is giving him his freedom to be with Norma. Rolling up with her gold shovel to give uh, Ed the, his divorce papers in a very <laughs> positive way. We've been waiting for this day for 30 years, 25 years. This, I think, if I'm not mistaken, uh, was the first day of shooting back in September of 2016 and might have been the first scene shot. Um, I remember seeing like a still on this website, dugpa.com, and uh, being super excited and thinking that, the, you know, starting in, in Twin Peaks and seeing these two characters, that what we were going to get was a show that was, you know, I knew it was going to be a little bit different, but uh, I didn't think that we were going to span the globe. I thought we were going to get more Twin Peaks. And I should have known because I think they only shot on location for about six weeks. And then they, they moved to California. But uh, that was a big tell, that they only shot in Twin Peaks for six weeks. And I think they shot for another, geez, I don't know, six months. How, what percentage of the show do you think was actually in Twin Peaks when it was all said and done? Uh, it was probably around, you know, 35 40% maybe. Does that sound about right? That's pretty good. Yeah, sounds about right. Nadine. She pretty much had her final scene with Jacoby, um, where we found out that she pretty much has her shit together. She has her own shop. Uh, she's been inspired. There was some flirtation going on with Jacoby. And I think after that, she realized she needed to shovel not only herself out of the shit, but help Ed shovel his way out of the shit by giving him his freedom so he could be with Norma. Did you think that she thought Ed was a part of the shit or that he was stuck in the shit with her? They were stuck in a big pile of shit together. <laughs> I think they were stuck in it. Or was he a part of the shit? I mean, come in. He's been sleeping with Norma off and on for, what, 25, 30 years, right? Really think it's been going on this whole time? Just still going on. 25 years later, they've been still rendezvousing. She's got like Walter. I mean, I think it's, you know, it's kind of on again, off again. But when we saw them in the pilot, they met at the roadhouse. The intimation is that they're still seeing each other. And then in Firewalk With Me, there's that great... Uh, uh, scene that was cut out with them in the, the Ed's truck and they're canoodling. It couldn't have been that great if it was cut out, Tom. <laughs> well, there was a bunch of shit cut out of Firewalk with me. <laughs> well, do you think Nadine, like when she leaves this scene here, she gives Ed his freedom that she's going to walk down the street and Dr. Amp's going to be waiting in his truck and she's going to hop in the truck and drive off? <laughs> He's watching from down the road. <laughs> Cause it's, yeah, because it seems like a really generous thing for her to do, but is it that generous if she goes straight to Dr. Amp and this was... You know, there's other things involved. She didn't tell him, hey, I'm in love with Dr. Amp. Do you think uh, Dr. Amp and Nadine would double date with Norma and Big Ed? Down the road? <laughs> they probably would. They probably would double date happily, I bet. What do you think? Go to the homecoming game? I think that uh, <laughs> they would be able to double date and enjoy each other's company. I mean, Yeah, they're probably cool with it. I think they could get along fine. They, I, you know, they've been in the same community for years. But I think that, not that there's an ulterior motive, but I think it was easier for Nadine to make this decision because of the possibility of having AMP in her life. Well, of course. That's what everybody does, right? Already got somebody waiting. Well, you feel comfortable, you know. You The breakups are less painful if you already have the next page figured out. That's true. What do they call that? They call that monkey bar? Monkey barring, that's right, from one relationship to the next. That's right, some people do that. I used to do that, not anymore. What about you? <laughs> no, no, I don't. I don't think I've ever done that, actually. 
Well, here it is. Uh, Big Ed thinks he's been rejected. He thinks Norma's lost forever. He's doing some Zen meditation at the counter, ordering some cyanide with his coffee. And you see that hand, just like Bob's hand coming out through the Glastonbury Grove, but a beautiful Peggy Lipton hand on his shoulder. He turns around. This is like, uh, I don't I wish I had the music on because uh, this is a great scene, dude. This is beautiful. This is like, a, I'm getting kind of welled up just watching it now with no sound on. It's a beautiful moment and... Uh, it's something we've been waiting for our whole lives when we never thought it would really happen, especially as the season began in season three. We thought this would, I mean, I was accepting him to, to not, maybe to go into some Lodgian uh, alternate reality and the glitch with his eyes closed. And then, because Lynch doesn't often give us happy endings. This is really the happiest ending of the entire show. When Ed comes up to her, there seems to be uh, a little bit of an excitement in Norma, but it's brief. And then it's almost like, well, Ed, uh, you know, I'm sorry. We've been doing this rodeo for decades and Walter's coming and he asks for the cyanide tablet. And it's almost like when he's closing his eyes and meditating, trying to will Norma. But there's a part of me that, that, that thinks that there's the possibility, even though it's probably less than 1%, that maybe this is like an Ed construct of what he wants to happen because it would fit into the narrative of season three of like a Cooper dream, the Vegas dream, part 18. Man, why you got to ruin the fantasy, man? <laughs> we know the reality sucks. Why have to ruin the fantasy, man? Dude, really? I mean, come on. I mean, I see what you're saying. It could be intellectually. It could be. But it's not, is it? Is it? No, it's not. I'm just I'm just offering no. that just because it's, it's built into this narrative of uh, whether we're talking about dreams or alternate timelines, retconning, the fact that Norma reacted the way that she did. And I know it's probably, you know, she was she was surprised. I mean, here's Ed coming into the diner all confident, like Nadine's giving me my freedom and she knows that Walter's coming. She, she probably had made a big decision already about letting the franchises go and wanting to stick to this double R. But it, you know, just uh, food for thought. It's just another little thing. And I don't want to compromise the the climax of this scene at all. We would know it was an Ed construct if it ended up in like they cut to him like in a white room, like staring to a mirror, <laughs> freaking out. Then we know. Then they didn't we would know, right? Yeah. They, they didn't do that. Yeah. So we'll take this for face value that this really happened, and it was like one of the highlights of uh, even all the first two seasons. And it really is an outlier in terms of like we don't see many happy couples or happy endings in this show. So it actually would make more sense thematically and tie into the rest of the theme of the story if it was an Ed construct. But Lynch gave us this one happy little Easter egg moment of joy here. It's wonderful. Thank you, David Lynch. Thank you. Even though you ruin it immediately, like literally the next scene, pure evil. But we have this little bubble, this little pocket bubble of happiness. Well, one thing to consider as well is that the first time that we actually started to suspect that there might be an alternate timeline or a shift actually happened in the Double R Diner in Part 7. Remember during those the end credits where it shifted, the yeah. patron shifted? Yeah. Um, so Very here we are within shifted. the Double R Diner with yeah. Ed and Norma. Maybe there are two things going on. Mm-hmm. 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 They should have had the glitch thing, but what should have happened is they remember in part, what episode was that when they ended with Ed eating the corn chowder? Oh, 13. The glitch in the, in 13, if he could have looked at the, the Double R while he was pr- looking at the window while he was praying... Or maybe while he's happy and kissing her right here and he sees the glitch, that could also have been an indicator. But they didn't do it. I don't see a glitch. You see a glitch? I see no glitch. No oh. glitches. No, this is this is reality. No this is really happening. And I'm, I am I was overjoyed. I'm still overjoyed. It's, There's no fugue state here. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. And this is the final scene of Shelley that we see. She didn't really have much of an arc in this season, did she? Her arc was just on the hood of the car, just getting flown off the hood. And that was it. But she is overcome with emotion as well. She is witnessing this great uh, scene with Ed and Norma, finally being able to be together, unshackled, the past, responsibility, commitment. They can be together now forever. And she just sees the pure bliss, the pure love. And I think it overwhelms her. But you get a hint um, of sadness that maybe she's thinking about her own triangle, her own relationship with Bobby. Maybe Bobby is her big Ed, and maybe this will be the the impetus for her to realize that he's the one that she needs to be with because it's obvious from Bobby's point of view that he wants to be with Shelly, and I can't imagine that Shelly doesn't know that, but 
she still got this thing with Red going on, this kind of bad boy thing that is an extension from Leo to Bobby to God knows who else. So, you know, maybe there's hope for Shelly and Bobby as well. Amen! Yeah, here we are down the road. Mr. C in the dark, my friend. Back to where uh, the whole season has been thematically, essentially. And this is where we're going to stay on this road to hell. Black evil, ominous, screeching, electrical wires, engine humming, a wood tick was crawling. <laughs> this is one of my favorite scenes of the entire season. I always wanted to see what happens when he approaches the convenience store. Mr. C finds the convenience store. And this scene is fucking fantastic. I mean, I love these the, these highway shots at night, especially of Mr. C. He's just, you know, his head's kind of bouncing. You know, he's just <laughs> yeah. got kind of a bemused expression. It's not like he's super serious here. No music, and no then, talk radio. Do you think Mr. C would listen to a lot of talk radio? Maybe some tapes that Chantal, some mixtapes that Chantal made him. Yeah, that'd be cool. Yeah. But uh, the fact that he goes from the highway immediately to this off-road, um, you don't see him turn. He's just suddenly there. And the fact that he knows where this location is, and you've posited correctly, I think, that the convenience store is kind of like a TARDIS, that it can appear pretty much anywhere. We've seen it in New Mexico. Here it is in the Northwest. Uh, we saw a glimpse of the inside of the convenience store in Buckhorn. So how did Mr. C know exactly where to find this location? That's a good question. Like you thought that maybe all the coordinates that he was looking for was, was this and it's not. And so how did he know? Yeah, it's interesting. They didn't use any GPS. Like when they have little Dickie Horn later, they have the GPS, right, to get to the spot. And they don't, he doesn't use GPS to get here. He just knows it. Yeah, he just knew how to get there. And it, it kind of fits into the, the dream logic that we're, we're having in season three. But Mr. C is on this hunt for these coordinates. And this, this is almost like a little de- detour to find out from Jeffries why he sent Ray to kill him. But he seems to have an ulterior motive and uh, asking Jeffries about Judy. It occurs to me walking through the woods like they, they transition between the hallway of the uh, convenience store and the woods, right? So you see that they're like in this alternate reality that's layered on top of the woods. It's a labyrinth. The convenience store is labyrinthian. Um, what we're seeing here is the meeting room that Jeffries described to Cooper, Cole, and Albert in Firewalk with me. And the meeting room leads to a corridor. We see the superimposition of the woods that you described walking down that corridor. And I think that's a tell that what we're dealing with here is two planes of reality. And that corridor leads to a staircase, which leads to a door, which leads to the courtyard of the Dutchman's where Philip Jeffries is located. Now, it's also the same location from Firewalk with me, where Leland went to rendezvous with Teresa and have a threesome with Renette and Laura. Um, it could very well be that Mr. C, uh, who you know has Bob within him, just like Leland had Bob with him, that there's somehow a connection with that particular location. Not that Philip Jeffries was there in Firewalk with me, but there might be something to that particular location that has a supernatural aspect. Since we saw uh, the Tremont grandson, as Leland was walking away, we see the Tremont grandson wearing the Jumpy Man mask, uh, frolicking in the courtyard. So maybe there is something connected between the Dutchman in, in season three and that courtyard motel in Fire Walk With Me. Well, don't you think maybe like the convenience store is like you enter into the convenience store, right? And it's at any place in the world, the TARDIS, and you're going through the woods, but you're going through like a time portal. It allows you to time jump. And so that perhaps this convenience store we're at with the bosomy woman here, where Philip Jeffries is, is actually somewhere really on earth. We've had this discussion before. I think with seeing the woods superimposed over that corridor and seeing the woods in the scenes in Twin Peaks with Jerry and Stephen and Gersten, which we're going to see here in a little bit, and experiencing uh, some, I would say, otherworldly activity, but hearing things and seeing things and experiencing things that aren't normal, that that could be the intimation here is that the convenience store has somehow, at least a part of it, um, has, has uh, appeared or is is present in Twin Peaks, or at least in the woods. I am not your well, just picture Mr. C continuing on past the motel. I don't think that eventually he's going to run up against a wall, a set like in the Truman Show. I think it's entirely possible that if he continued on, he could wind up in Twin Peaks or any other place for that matter. Or could he? 
<laughs> we don't know. I want to say this here before we get too far into the Jeffrey scene here is that the Busby woman is an androgynous figure. It's played by a man. And my thinking is that the Judy character is not represented by just one person. She's in an extreme negative force. It could very well be Sarah. It could be the glass box monster. It could be that experiment we saw in part eight. But it could also be this Busby woman. I mean, Jeffrey just says here, you've already met Judy. I mean, he just met this woman here. That could have been kind of like a wink-wink here or whatever. Is that this Judy who has the key to the room where Jeffries is locked, uh, kind of intimating that he is imprisoned, that this extreme negative force has locked this, the, the, uh, the Blue Rose agent who has been tasked to find her. So she has the key, and she's letting her confederate, even though Mr. C isn't kind of familiar with who this character is, Busy Woman, to enter to talk to Mr. Jeffries. But she kind of has this omniscient kind of quality to her because at the end of the episode, once we have the, the credit sequence, we have the courtyard, and 10 seconds before the show ends, Lynch cuts to another shot of the courtyard, and there you see her in the darkness, kind of standing like in between a room. She's got the key. I would think Judy uh, would probably not be this character, but that's an interesting uh, concept. So you think you're right that that should mean something. That that and I interesting. Maybe there's a bunch of Judys and a bunch of Judes. Could be Judy or Jude. There could be all kinds of little Judy forms all around the world. That's not her, but it could be one of the Judy children, perhaps bug kids. Well, Judy, I think, was summoned from the woodsman in the convenience store in part eight. And that's where she spewed out all those eggs or whatever. So it makes sense that a part of her um, will remain or has access to this convenience store. And why not just have a you know manifestation of this bosomy woman? I mean, the glass box monster and that experiment are both androgynous. You can't really you know determine whether it's a male or a female. And I think Lynch was very deliberate in casting a male actor. And calling him the bosomy woman. Well, it's kind of interesting, like the Wizard of Oz, like the, everyone thinks Oz is this great being, but he's really just a small, you know, person, you know, unassuming behind the curtain. You know, that's kind of a lot of big stories about these giant myths of evil or good or gods or goddesses, whatever it is. Uh, in the end, like, it could be just a, a dude in a house robe running a motel. <laughs> it's not like that's the big mystery. This is who it is. This is the, the, the Ace of Spades, the, the symbol, the whole thing, the Palmer House, Mrs. Tremont, all these things. I just think, because there is no right answer of what an extreme negative force is. So Philip Jeffrey says, why don't you ask Judy yourself? He meant just turn around and go outside the door and ask Judy. <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe it's as simple as yeah. that, right? Um, I think when he's having his conversation with Jeffries, he, he asks him, who is Judy? And you mentioned you know, he, that he mentioned like seeing him in the Philadelphia offices in 1989. But Jeffrey says at some point during the conversation that we used to talk. And Albert said that he gave Jeffries info to give to Cooper after the events of 1989. Yeah, all that backstory. Yeah, so if Cooper and, and You do Jeff- a whole series on just that, like just the 25 years of Jeffries and Mr. C hanging out and Albert and all that subterfuge if they had been talking and working together uh with some nefarious activities god knows what if it was supernatural and in context you would think that mr c you know having this end game in mind would have asked jeffries at some point hey you remember that conversation you know you in philadelphia that judy thing who's that judy thing instead of waiting 25 years because they'd been talking that's true that's a good point that's kind of a plot hole isn't it why wait it's a good question. I mean, he also says, so you are Cooper. There's some fuzziness going on here, at least with Jeffries. It's slippery in here. Maybe but- they're just getting old, Tom. They're just losing their memories. They're getting old. They forget about shit. Um, but this whole conversation, I mean, Jeffries really is fucking with, with Mr. C here. Yeah, he knows this is not Cooper. That's why he's given him the false uh, coordinate. Right, right. But it is interesting that that the 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 Jeffries that we do see in part 17, he's still having some issues with, with, uh, with time. He's cause he's unstuck in time. Cause he's flying around the damn TARDIS all the time. He's stuck in like a cosmic gulag. So he's moving around. So he's just all fuddled. He's sitting in a, he's, he's really not even a human anymore. I think he's just that orb. What a great Jeffries, by the way, this, like just the whole design of this scene and the, the creation of Philip Jeffries is this tea kettle orb coming out is just, just so imaginative and fantastic. It's iconic. Do you think someone like a Chet Desmond, another uh, Blue Rose agent, is in another locked room at the Dutchman's? Yeah, another gulag. Audrey, too, as well. The original Diane. This yeah. might be some kind of a cosmic gulag prison. Yeah. Wendemerle. 
perhaps. Well, it's interesting too with the <laughs> with Earl as well. Is that the playing the flute? The, yes. The convenience stores that Jeffries and Teresa Banks and Laura. They all had connections with the convenience store or Mrs. Tremont. I mean, Laura got the painting from Mrs. Tremont and entered it. We saw the Dutchman's, which led to the Black Lodge. Uh, the Mrs. Tremont and her son, grandson, lived at the Fat Trot trailer park. And presumably that's how Teresa got the ring. What if Teresa was given a similar painting by Mrs. Tremont? And what if during Philip Jeffrey's hunt, for Judy in you know Buenos Aires or God knows where else that he came across Mrs. Tremont who also gave him a painting and what if this painting is to somehow lure these characters who are either um, searching for Judy or someone like Laura who is uh, being hunted by Bob presumably for Garmin Bozia or other spirits that that this is a way to lure them into the convenience store, to lure them in a situation where they become unstuck in time, or a way to create tulpas. That all these characters somehow have multiple identities and are, are maybe trapped in multiple timelines. Yeah, then Mr. C or whoever, like the minion of Judy, could just be mass producing the, the, the paintings. We have a warehouse right. full of millions of them. Right. <laughs> Distribute them around the world. And everyone gets sucked in. Dude, we, okay, so there it is. A little Dickie Horn just uh, sprung a, an ambush on Mr. C, and Mr. C disarmed him in 2.2, and now they're uh, on the road together. They're buddies, father-son, and uh, I posit that Mr. C wanted a little Dickie Horn to follow him because he needed a sacrificial lamb for the next step. He knew maybe uh, Philip Jeffries was going to give him a red herring uh, coordinates, and so he didn't really get crept up on by that bumbling moron. I think. No, I think this is part of Mr. C being not the brilliant mastermind uh, for the preceding 25 years. Ever since Cooper um, left the uh, the Purple Room and appeared in Vegas and Mr. C had his accident, you know, spewed up at the Garmin Bozia, he's been making misstep after misstep. And I think that his brilliant diamond-like mind um, has been <laughs> compromised by his presence. So looking at his face, he does not look like he has a diamond-like mind at all. I don't think so at all. Well, that was a reference to Windermurrow, my friend. He's like, he's cold and he's brilliant. He's like a diamond. Um, but um, I think he didn't know that little Dickie Horn was following him. <laughs> and uh, uh, I think that that's another, uh, you know, he had been probably following him for like hundreds of miles or at least 50 miles from the farm. And you would assume that it's at least some distance from the farm. So I think that, you know, he crept, he allowed his, his illegitimate son to creep up on him because Mr. C is so focused on the task at hand. He had no distractions at all. He had no phone right. on, he had no radio, he had no right. GPS. He just, just sat there in the dark and looked. There's a, some lights behind him for 300 miles. It was a Saturn too, like a 2000 Saturn. We've seen it all fucked up. I would have noticed it. Does he know that he's his son? I don't think he knew until he, he asked him who his mom is. And once he knew, once he was told it was Audrey. Dude, in all kind of classic uh, lord that you would be aware of your bastard child, he'd come and avenge you and have you killed. Don't you? Uh, Mr. C should have had um, little Dickie Horn on his radar, don't you think? Yes, I would think that he knew that he had an illegitimate yeah. son, that Audrey was pregnant. He probably didn't fit into the grand scheme of things, but being omniscient because Cooper or Mr. C had that quality, at least in the beginning of season three, but I think that quality... Uh, waned uh, as the season progressed. I think his powers diminished because of the two Cooper, uh, of, of the, the Cooper presence, presumably in the real world, but at least out of the construct of, you know, the lodge, whether it be a dream or not, is that the one-armed man even said that you, the two of you can't occupy the evolution of the arm, said that two of you can't occupy pretty much the same place in, in the real world. And I think that whether they're doing that in the real world or if Cooper's in a dream, it is affecting Mr. C. And I think that's why he is not as brilliant uh, post part three. I'll buy that. Well, here we are. Here's a big intense scene, a great scene with Steven and uh, Alicia Witt, uh, Donna's sister that played the piano and was the princess in season two. And she's all fucked up now. She's dated the wrong <laughs> man and they're all whacked out on Sparkle. Looks like he's killed somebody. On the second, upon second, now third viewing, it does look like he whacked Becky now and he's really guilty he has the gun they're talking about becky and and he did it and 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 gersten, uh, gersten is saying no she did it she did it to herself but with the end of this scene mark frost makes a cameo here with walking his dog and he goes back to the fat trot trailer park i mean they're literally only 50 yards from the fat trot trailer park so it's not like this is some big hideaway here but uh we've, when been Harry, we've actually been to this tree we have we've been to this tree but 
when Mark Frost tells Harry Dean what he saw and who he saw and points to that trailer, there is a Lynch cuts to that trailer and there's this ominous like undertone or this ominous musical cue and he holds on the trailer and and the 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 window that's been shattered from the coffee cup and for me the suggestion is that there is you know a dead body inside that Becky very well may be inside that trailer and Steven did it and that's why he's acting the way that he is i mean this isn't just some crazy bad sparkle high i think that he is high but i also think that he's riddled with guilt of what he did and uh, I think that once he's discovered by Mark Frost's character, that he shoots himself. Now, we don't get any definitive answers here, but um, and it's open-ended, but they are in the woods. And the way that Lynch is shooting this with a lot of overhead shots, like looking up, and it's almost like the spirits are you know looking down upon them and you know like the gods whether they're demons or gods and and here the here these these mortals are uh, uh, committed potentially this great sin and is being judged or being observed and I think that's feeding into the the sparkle high the guilt that at least he's feeling and and she's complicit as well um, having an affair and knowing what's going on and 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 so it, it's really a beautifully shot scene it's very disturbing the dialogue is almost nonsensical well don't you think like she's talking about going to the lightning in a bottle and all that stuff he has some code words in here but if is he has he gone to the lodge at some point or something because he looks like a good candidate for it <laughs> well i just love how he repeats that he's a high school graduate i mean that would be <laughs> on his epitaph this is great acting this is great both this is like a this is their sizzle reel scene right here for your consideration uh, alicia witt really only has this this scene we we Glimpsed her briefly, I think, in part 11. Hiding from Becky when she was stampeding with the gun, shooting shit. Whether this is true or not, I don't know. But when they wanted to, uh, uh, when they were casting this, they wanted to bring back Donna. They wanted to bring back Laura Flynn Boyle. That would have been great. And to see Donna. the rumor is that it would have been this role. Oh, oh, that would have been interesting. Whoa. See, that would have been cool. And she turned it down. And so Lynch and Frost went this route and, and cast Gersten. Now, whether Gersten would have been cast as someone else, I don't know. But And who knows if that's true or not. But that was that was something that I did read. Well, Gersten did a great job. She's Now she's freaking out. Like, he just shot himself, and she is tripping. And I love this scene. I thought she, she's looking up at the sky like maybe a portal's going to open up, but it doesn't. But uh, this is just a really impactful scene. It really disturbed me. I know some people didn't like it, but I, I think it's uh, – it's kind of the essence of the hardcore, like Twin Peaks. Like we, we wanted there to be like high school lovers gone astray, madness, tragedy. Like there wasn't a lot of that, but this is kind of like a microcosm of what we wanted to see in the series that we didn't get that much of. But I love it. It fits perfectly into the Twin Peaks universe. And that's what really the Twin Peaks universe is. It's the highs and the lows. It's the drama. It's the comedy. It's the mystery. Uh, it's the suspense. It's the horror. It's it's everything. It's a palette. It's the Lynch palette. I want to see more Caleb Blader Jones. Like him getting involved like Bobby, you know, in subplots with like the Leos of the world. I would have big dug digging that. He can have his own snake. Now watch how we see Harry Dean here with a shovel. Is this a gold shovel? Is that a gold shovel? I can't tell. I'm colorblind, Tom. <laughs> it's a long shot. I don't think we could determine if Judge? it's a gold shovel, but... I don't think it is. He wouldn't spend 50 bucks on a goddamn gold shovel from Dr. Amp. Fuck that shit. <laughs> yeah, there it is. He lives in the trailer. Oh, yeah. Ominous music right over the shot. And there's a there's still the hole for the coffee cup that went flying out. Yep. And so Becky's in there. Valhalla, season wrap on Becky. Stephen, Kirsten. And this is the final scene of Harry Dean Stanton, the new Fat Trout trailer park, which really didn't play that integral a role in uh, season three. I thought that it would after Firewalk With Me with the electricity pole and uh, the, the Tremonds, the Chalfonts, Teresa Banks's trailer, you know, Chet Desmond, The Ring. So that was a little bit of a disappointment that it didn't play into the mythology a little bit more that was created in Firewalk With Me. And uh, Harry Dean gets kind of an anticlimactic send-off. I mean, talking to the co-creator of Twin Peaks, Mark Frost, you know, holding on to what could be a gold shovel and looking, you know, forebodingly at... Uh, uh, Steven and uh, and Becky's trailer. And that's it. I'm glad that we did get the Fat Trot trailer park, but uh, I would have liked to have a little bit more of a supernatural aspect uh, incorporated into season three. Well, here we are at the Roadhouse. What the hell's going on here? I've totally forgotten. Oh, sharp dressed me. <laughs> here we go. Freddie in the glove, my friend, taking his uh, party to the Roadhouse. And it's ZZ Top Night. And... Uh, don't you have a theory about this one actor here who we see? Like he's he's a part of the lodge somehow. Well, he only appears. His first appearance is after is in part eight. 
For Nine Inch Nails, yeah. And he goes, the Nine Inch Nails. All the preceding Roadhouse scenes, I think, are based in like one timeline or if you want to say one reality. And it seems like that scene in part seven, and that seems to be the transition scene. That is the one we talked about earlier with the diner, with the patrons changing from shot to shot. And that character comes in and asks, has anyone seen Billy? But uh, there's the scene that precedes that with the sweeping of the peanut shells for like three and a half minutes while Green Onions is playing in the background. And we see Jacques Renault or Jean-Michel, a.k.a. Jacques Renault, on the phone uh, doing his best Jacques Renault, talking to some, you know, customer who, you know, he, he pimped out a couple of uh, grade A high school whores to. To a grade A, yeah. High school sandwich. Sandwich. Did he still have the accent? Yeah, he still had the accent. Wait, isn't he dead, though? He's just his twin brother for the deal? Well, yeah, he's li- labeled in the credits as Jean-Michel. But what I'm saying is, is that... I think that is the curtain call for the Roadhouse in this one timeline or reality. Well, that's interesting because I noticed that uh, there's no peanuts on the ground in this scene. Where are the peanuts? I don't see any peanuts. Maybe the elephant left with the retcon. Next time we see the Roadhouse, we see this MC introduce various acts. We don't see Jean-Michel again. There's all these class acts. It feeds into the the supernatural aspect of what's going on, which which culminates with Audrey. We have all those conversations with those patrons talking about similar characters that are in Audrey's narrative. We have James on stage singing um, with the ghostly doubles of Donna and, and Maddie. We have the Audrey theme playing. In reverse. Which is hard to do, Tom. It's hard to do. <laughs> so that's what I'm thinking is that there. that's where the shift happens. And there's a couple things here. Renee's husband, who James is, is hot for Renee, Renee's husband is named Chuck. Chuck is one of the names mentioned by Audrey and Charlie and I think one of those patrons. He's one of the cavalcade of names or whatever. But also when Freddie uses his glove to hit both those characters to punch him out, the sharp-dressed man that's playing on the back uh, in the background, it, the record skips and there's like electrical static, like buzzing, which kind of connotes to me is that, that the, the reality or that supernatural aspect or what's going on isn't real. So it's almost like the record is skipping on, on this particular reality. Well, also what's happening, what we're seeing while the record skips looks is completely unreal. A guy with a, like a, a dishwashing glove, like, you know, crushing somebody with a tiny punch like a superhero. <laughs> that also is unreal. It, it plays into that second half roadhouse scenes where here's the, even though we saw him in part two with the green glove and we saw James and you know, we saw Shelly, but she had her girlfriends. It's like, I think that was one timeline that he didn't have the fireman's you know, story to tell in part two, but after part seven, then he does. So his actions within the roadhouse take on a more fantastic Lynchian. Lynchian. Well, what else doesn't seem real is this whole Jennifer Jason Lee assassination scene in Vegas, which is hilarious. <laughs> I love this scene. <laughs> Here it is. <laughs> oh, my God. He falls down. Oh, <laughs> that is so hilarious. I just saw it. She just whacked them both. I love that scene so much. I think it's hilarious. Uh, like Mr. Bill, when he gets shot and then his henchman like dropping to his knees and falling like that is just classic. And I love how Jennifer Jason Lee just swims, moves in and out in her little heels and stuff. She looks great. Yeah, Duncan Todd getting blown away. I mean, they have the great special effects of part eight, and then to see the special effects of that. It's like he made it out of like Mr. Bill, like Play-Doh live action, <laughs> like animation at some point when his head blows off. It does. It looks so hilariously unreal and like a Lynch artistic uh, creation. And then the way his sidekick like drops to his knees and falls down, it's just a, it's a laugh a second. I love this scene. It's one of the funniest in the whole series. I think it plays into like the non-reality of Vegas. And we think that's kind of a dream construct. So it makes sense that the special effects in Vegas are unreal, that they, they're not as vivid and realistic as something that we saw in part eight, which was something in history, the Trinity test. He's like, we're out of money. Just throw something together. Throw some shit up there. This jail scene. Here we are. It's all set up. It's yes, all... Billy in here real? He doesn't seem real. Who? Billy. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> the guy drooling, Tom. The guy drooling. They're repeating everybody. I call him Billy. You call him the guy. But uh, he doesn't seem real either. This is all set up for part 17. So we've got Nido, Billy, the two guys from the dream world with the glove and James. And then we got uh, uh, Chad in this room. Right. That's right. like four to five non-reality. Well, James is two. So we got three weirdos. And uh, Freddie is in jail cell number eight. You know, Lynch is into the whole numerology bit. Um, Philip Jeffries was in room number eight. 
within the Dutchman. Well, it does kind of lead to like you're saying this: the retcon or the the evil has taken over the town here, and this kind of plays into that. I think this scene would be because it's setting it up for seventeen. It's setting it up for a moment where the alternate reality and the and Cooper's reality meet when the Mister C, Doppel and and the the Cooper trap the lodge meet. You know, so maybe this is not reality as you say. This thing never seemed like reality. <laughs> All this stuff in the basement. I love it though. I love this uh, little aside moment with Chantal and Hutch. When I watch this again, it's hilarious. Yeah, it's one of those ones we didn't love when we first saw it because it was like filler sort of. But in the, Clinch wrote these specifically for, because they got Tim Roth and Jennifer Jason Lee, right? So they wanted to build those characters out. But now it feels essential. And uh, especially with the way they end, their ending, I think they were essential to the series, this season. Um, and they weren't just fluff. I love these two characters. I mean, he's talking about the you know hypocrisy of the, the Catholic Church. Everyone's murderous, so it's okay for them to murder. It should be called Thou Shalt Kill. Thou Shalt Forgive No One. Thou Shalt Fuck Them In The Ass. Yeah. It kind of makes you want to eat fast food. Does it make you want to eat fast food or never want to eat it again when you see them eating like this? No, it makes me want to eat a cheeseburger right now. Yeah, I want to eat a cheeseburger. Why do I think I want to eat cheeseburger? <laughs> he gets to the pie, Tom. That's such a, you know I did. I love you, Hutch. A good, nice apple pie. That's always a, that's always a sign of love when someone gives you a piece of pie, Tom. And I love how she ends it with just pointing out, like, Mars. God of War. All right, here we go. Oh, dude, here we go. Chocolate scene. It's a chocolate cake scene to end all chocolate cake scenes. <laughs> it was also the culmination. Finally. 16 episodes. 14, 15 episodes. We've been waiting for this shit. She says right before she departs, all of our dreams are coming true. I mean, it really does kind of summarize what this character of Dale Cooper as Dougie has represented to Janie E and Sonny Jim. I mean, look who their, you know, her husband and his father was. I mean, the Tulpa Dougie, overweight, a gambling addict, you know, adulterer, a criminal. They were in the shit. And Cooper's presence, even though he, he had sweet hair. He did have sweet hair. Even though Cooper really hasn't done anything, his presence... He finally gave her some good loving. Well, he didn't know. She got some good loving just by him being there, his well, presence. But there. his presence has <laughs> allowed them to shovel themselves out of the shit, uh, thematically tying into the whole... Yeah, as soon as it happens, then it's going to all fall down for Janie E then. Although there's a happy ending, as we know. Cooper knows well enough that he's got a bigger goal in mind. I mean, we're talking about some cosmic chess match here with Fireman and Judy that he's going to go ahead and give some of his DNA to Philip Gerard to give another Tulpa to this wonderful family because he knows that um, they're special people and, and they have helped him. Dude, I can't tell you how fucking happy I was when he pushed this button and Sunset Boulevard comes on. I freaked out. I love that movie. And this is, I was like, oh my God. And then also I knew that Gordon Cole was taken for that movie and we were trying to get him to wake up and I was like, let's hear it. Let's hear yeah, it. I love it. They freeze it. They cut back to it. I love this scene. It's so great. It's beautiful. It's fantastic. I think I was flipped because this is like a moment where like everyone is watching this is like, wake up, wake up. Come on. You can do it. What are you going to do? And they were like, uh-oh. And he starts looking at the light socket. We're like, oh shit. I thought it was going to go into the light socket. That's going to be sucked in because he probably remembers coming through the electrical sockets to get there. It does go back to that one scene when they were in the Vegas uh, police department. Remember he saw the... Yeah, Star Spangled Banner and then the woman with the red heels walking by. And then it, his eyes went straight to the socket. Yeah, he must have known because, like you said, you thought maybe he was going to go into it and show up somewhere else. He knows he's dreaming at this point, right? He's like, I'm dreaming. I got to wake up. I got to wake up. That's what it's going through his head at this point. No, he doesn't. He doesn't realize <laughs> he's dreaming until part 17. He thinks he's got it all figured out. He's got the key from Truman. He's got everyone there. He knows he's going to go back in time and save Laura. And then all of a sudden his, his big head shows up and he realizes, fuck, <laughs> it's a dream. No, but he had to know here, right? If Okay, Gordon Cole would make him go, I am not Dougie. I'm Dale Cooper. I think I'm Dougie. I've been living this Dougie world, so clearly that's been some sort of figment. Call it a dream. Call it a figment. Call it a non-reality. Oop, there he goes. I love the scream. I think think of Cooper as oh, kind man. of being in this kind of zombie-like state. I think he's there, and as he's had moments like he's lying and with Ike the Spike. He's not in the sunken place. Like he's down there in the sunken place. He's trying to. He's trying that to scene back. foreshadows part eighteen. I mean, we have the electricity going out. We have the scream. We have Cooper, uh, you know, one identity ending as Dougie Jones and slowly becoming, we're eventually going to become the Dale Cooper that we all know and love. So, you know, there is with whether, you know, part 18 is a dream, which we suspect, and part 15 is a dream. Here we have two dream states 
pretty much ending in similar fashions. Yeah. Well, here we go. Here's one story about to end. Margaret Lanterman, the death of the log lady scene. Another poignant moment. Okay, watch this scene. I want to point something out here is that this whole scene, I mean, we... I mean, I didn't know that it was building up to uh, like a farewell for her. I knew we all knew that she passed away during production, but I mean, this is you know her curtain call, and it's a very poignant, very sad scene. But Hawk really doesn't do much talking. But in the middle of you know Margaret's death speech here, she gives him a final warning, and she tells him to watch out for that one that she mentioned, the one under Blue Pine Mountain, under the moon, the, the Judy symbol. Watch Hawk's re- expression like during this whole scene. He's you know, he's very solemn. Why can't she say more of the phone, Tom? Why? I think it's tied into Cole. Cole is very suspicious of uh, devices, electricity, bugs. I think Cole is privy to uh, the spirit world and the uh, the electricity being a conduit for travel. So what does that do? The log lady not want to talk on the phone. I think she knows as well. I think she knows that if she's talking on the phone or using devices, electricity, phones, that there could be some eavesdropping. Okay, so the lodgemen are tapping all the electrical wires. <laughs> in so many words, yeah. They're up there like Green Acres. They're up there like, yeah, listening in. Like Greek Duke and the burbs. Yeah. But so she says, watch out for that one. And Hawk has a look of confusion. At the only time during this scene, it's almost like, wait a second, you're telling me from our previous dialogue to watch out for this one. And he seems to be uncertain as to what this meaning is. And it made me think of all these scenes, we were talking about the roadhouse scenes preceding part eight of maybe being in two timelines. What if the log lady who her first scene was to give Hawk this clue to what ultimately ultimately led to finding the diary pages. Who put the diary pages in there? Carrie page, the missing pages, Carrie page. (laughs) What if, once that was fulfilled after part seven, that there was this shifting timeline, even with Margaret and Hawk. It is conceivable. I suppose if you talk about the episode seven, like slow switch that we've talked about that, that in that diner scene at the end where it switches and we start to see like the glitch that Ed sees in the window and certain things that imply that the retcon may actually already be taking over the town. And what some scenes we may be seeing might be, part retcon and part reality. So that would be an interesting take if uh, half of uh, which one would be in the retcon? Would Hawk be in the retcon or would the log lady be in the retcon? Well, that's a good question. What I'm saying is that all of their conversations post part seven is Hawk in the office and her in her home. Now it was like that preceding that other than when he was in Glastonbury Grove, but she made reference to their talks face to face and coming over for pie and coffee. But she was basically saying all these 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 cryptic clues that were feeding into what I thought was their narrative going to Jackrabbit's Palace and what was going to unfold in Part 17 and 18 with maybe woodsmen you know, showing up in town and the big battle and Judy and all this stuff happening in the woods. Yeah, the living map, we introduced to that. Like, we were expecting something and it didn't pay. It didn't come to fruition. Yeah. Yeah, and it didn't happen. But maybe it's happening on one timeline because when they go to Jackrabbit's Palace, you see the three characters of Bobby, Truman, and Hawk. You see like silhouettes of them like converging. It's like like you see the multiple timelines after they left Jackrabbit's Palace. And then Hawk says, I don't remember what happened. So maybe there was something where Margaret is tapped into it and she is in one of the timeline trying to communicate to Hawk what's going on, but neither of them know that they're in different timelines and, and they're not able to get on the same page. What will be the phone bill on that? <laughs> I'm not sure I buy that, but that would make sense if like in part seven, you know, when you're at the diner and he comes in and says, where's Billy? And we see the switch on the right side. It would have been great if the, if the log lady was sitting there chewing her spit gum or whatever. Spit her gum out on one side. What is that play? What is it called? The something pitch gum? It's pitch gum. Your sticky pitch gum. Yeah, sticky pitch gum. That's it. I read somewhere she was supposed to be in part 17 in the sheriff's station. <laughs> and wouldn't that make of sense? Of course. She definitely should have been there. Although I would have been like, hey, thanks for all the bad tips. All red herrings. All of them. <laughs> I would know what I would do if I was Hawk. I'd say, hey, point out in this room who was the evil force on Blue Pine Mountain Road or whatever. Then she'd move her hand. You start camera, camera, and it would stop on Cooper. Hawk knows what it is. He's just... I thought Hawk didn't know. I thought that was the whole point. He didn't know. You said She said it. He was like, Hawk. You know, he knows on his map what that Judy symbol represents, and he's not going to talk about it. Oh, yeah. He wouldn't talk about that either. What the hell? Well, she's also... Log Lady's also talking about Laura is the one, and it all comes flowing out now like a river, all leading some to some 
big end game that never happens in <laughs> that timeline. You know what's going to lead to, Tom? It's going to lead to a television series about Laura Palmer is what it is. That's the big thing. She's the one. That's why. All this is, it's all mystery. Yeah, all the answers to this is just Lynch going dropping mysterious, like, uh, tributaries and stuff to keep the mystery going. We're never supposed to find out who the who, who on Blue Pine Mountain Road is. Unless you want to just assume it's Judy. Wait, is Judy? Was it the Judy symbol from the card? Was that what it was? Yeah, it's the same symbol. That's the answer right there, then. It's Judy. What's also on the little note that Briggs gave to or put in that little tube that they found. Well, here we are. Here we are, Charlie and Audrey. We're stuck in the lodge again, another concentric form of hell, concentric circle that I think they're stuck in. I just love Charlie. I love me some Charlie. I like to I like him I like to hang out with Charlie. He'd be really fun, I think. Fun dude. <laughs> that look on Charlie's face is hilarious. <laughs> like frown scowl. This scene takes place in the script. Someone got access to this scene in the season three script. I don't ask me how they found out, but um, it's described in the script as old room. The the furniture, the set dressing has more kind of an antiquated look to it. And that I think the intimation is that it's not of this time and place. She's the dweller on the threshold right now. She can't cross out because she can't face it. Just like Cooper has not been able to face that he has been Dougie this whole time in, a, in his own construct. She can't face it either. So she's afraid to now get out. Even though she's been yelling about it the whole time. She can't do it. Audrey doesn't want to go. Audrey wants to go and she doesn't want to go. And we've been talking about this shifting timelines and what we find, what we know happens in part 17 with Cooper going back in time, saving Laura, uh, minimizes his presence in the original series. And if he never went into the Black Lodge and created the doppelganger uh, that we saw in season three, and that's really kind of what we're seeing in part 18 is an amalgamation of Cooper and you know his darker half minus Bob. But if he never showed up in the Black Lodge and came out, and then he would have never raped Audrey Horn, and Little Dicky Horn would have never create been created. So it makes sense that a part of Audrey, and maybe the reason why she is in this you know, purgatory, uh, that there's a part of her reality which doesn't exist or is slowly changing. That wanting to be assertive and going to the roadhouse and finding Billy, someone that she's in love with and not this man that she's married to. But there's a part of her that, that doesn't want to go. And here's Charlie, who's maybe a manifestation, you know, or a representation of, of like, you know, her id or ego or some part of her the mental uh, makeup telling her about the, you know, we're on the threshold and do I have to end your story too? It's like almost like, facing the reality or not want to face facing the reality. But I think that that's why Audrey is, is stuck herself is because the effects of what's going on with Cooper and Laura is affecting her. Now she very well may be trapped in some kind of netherworld portal, whether it was in the great Northern furnace room, or if she wound up somehow, you know, being taken to the convenience store or if being raped by Mr. C somehow, you know, damns you or marks you. But the whole shifting of the timelines is not only affecting Cooper, it's affecting the whole town and all the characters and some of these storylines. I like to believe that they, she is trapped in some sort of lodge nightmare of her own after she got raped by Mr. C and had to have the demon seed of Dickie Horn, which is like a half lodge entity that she's stuck in this, uh, her own, her own, uh, you know, circle universe, just like Laura's trapped in her own world and Cooper's trapped in his own world. And wouldn't it be like the ultimate hell to be trapped in, the, in a never-ending cycle of just arguing, squabbling with your longtime husband or wife that you hate. You know what I mean? That's that's a that's a that's a, a singular version of hell right there. Uh, I'd, I'd probably choose many other ones. <laughs> <laughs> I'd rather be walking through like just the red room, just aimlessly for years, than be doing that constantly. So here we are in the final scene with Charlene Yee. I, this is one of my favorite scenes also in the entire series. I don't know why exactly, but I love that. It's almost like I'm trying to figure out, is this really her? Like just in a real world being, you know, it's like her expressing her feminine rage for the entire series of all the women that have been abused and used and tortured in this fucking series. Like that she's fucking screaming out of that or that, uh, that she's really somehow, because she's crawling around like she could be inhabited by something. If you're saying that the roadhouse is constantly, you know, inhabited or is not really a, a real world, that maybe she might be controlled by, because we're constantly seeing like the jumping man, Bob, little man, like everybody's screaming just like that, right? Like those close cuts of just screeching from hell. So, or, you know, it could, it could also be tied into uh, the Cooper scene, because remember that one, somebody tied it together, they synced them up. 
and the scene where Cooper is watching the Sunset Boulevard and crawling towards the uh, the the electrical socket, it links up exactly perfect timing when you when you put that scene with the Charlene Yee scene together with the synchronicity of her crawling on the floor to scream and him crawling on the floor to hit the light socket. It's exact. Um, so, what do you think of the scene? It's an extension of Audrey. I think a lot of these Roadhouse scenes past part seven are somehow connected to Audrey. And I think what I just described with Audrey, we're seeing, you know, come out with the Charlene Yee character and her rage coming out. We just saw the same thing with, with uh, Audrey, with Charlie becoming so frustrated that she attacks him and starts screaming at him. And I think it's because there's a part of her like knows that, that her state, her presence in that, that location is, you know, unreal to some extent, or there's something about her that she doesn't understand. She's even said like, you know, I, I'm not me. I don't know who I am. And here's, we see the Charlene Yee character alone in the roadhouse waiting for someone who's not showing up. So she's an avatar like Audrey in her own head. The roadhouse is all, all the goings on her yeah. own head. Yeah. All right. Very well then. Well, here we are the final scene. We're back at the convenience store. All of these rewatches for me is that Judy isn't one thing and Judy isn't just a person. I think Judy can be a person. I think Judy is a person, but I also think Judy is a, a a place. I think Judy is a time. Judy could be a feeling. One of the best things about this episode in retrospect, now that we're watching it again, is like that it really set up like so much awesome mystery and new stuff going on. Like to where I was like, what are the next three episodes going to be like? Holy shit. And then as soon as you start answering them in 16, 17, 18, I got a little bit disappointed in some, in some ways. You know what I mean? Like I love the peak. This is like, this is peak mystery. Right here, I was like, anything was possible. You know what I mean? Like, so this is, I think that's one reason why I love this episode so much. Basically, it's one of those deals where, like, it's kind of like ties into the whole Lynch thing. Keep the mystery alive. Like, that's the best part. When you know, when you're in the thralls of the mystery, like, that's why first acts in movies are so good. You know, when you're setting it up, it's always great because anything's possible. But once you start answering them, you know, whether it was satisfying or not, there's, especially in shows like Lynch, you know, there's all kinds of different angles and loopholes and things that they did not tie up. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, other than that, thanks for tuning in. Thanks for uh, taking the extra week. Hope you enjoy. See you next time. <laughs> <laughs>
to Jeffries. I mean, he's still sending signals out to the real world, contacting Albert, contacting Mr. C, and maybe in, in cahoots with uh, Philip Gerard and uh, and maybe even the fireman and Ray Monroe. I don't know, but when I saw that, I was like, wow, this is fantastic. I thought it was a great payoff, and I thought there was going to be more action in the convenience store that we would find out more. Like, I would have liked a whole episode just in the convenience store. You know what I'm saying? Not just not following just Cooper or Mr. C, but like maybe just like staying in the convenience store and seeing who, st- who stops by, who pops in. It'd be interesting. <laughs> so, th- once again, Mr. C's an idiot, then. He could have just said, like, hey, are you Judy? Before he walked in. And your name is? Mr. C, glad to meet you. We did. In New York? Yeah. <laughs> you, yeah, that's right. <laughs> Always gone.